0: Welcome to the Loewenstein-Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Loewenstein-Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at loewenstein.com podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen.
1: Welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, Chair of the Loewenstein-Sandler Insurance Recovery Group, And today, I'm joined by my partner and co-host, Mr. Eric Jesse. How are you doing today, Eric?
2: I'm good. How are you, Linda?
1: All right. Well, I'm actually very excited because today we're going to be talking about something that's near and dear to our hearts. And yes, even though we're lawyers, we do have them. And that is, we're going to talk about reps and warranties insurance. It's common knowledge that in the merger and acquisition community, reps and warranty insurance is and remains a widely used risk transfer solution in deals. But despite the popularity of reps and warranties insurance for the better part of a decade, there are still many common myths and misconceptions. So today, Eric and I are going to break down some of those myths and dispel them as we always do. So Eric, let's dive in. While there are many myths that we could talk about, what are the ones that you tend to encounter the most often?
2: So I think one of the most common myths we see is that, you know, r insurance is not going to be the right fit for a deal. And I think that's because there's a perception that, you know, r and insurance might not be for a specific type of deal, or the deal isn't the right size, or it's not the right industry and you know the reality is that R&W insurance is very versatile and working with underwriters and brokers i find that they are committed to finding ways to make R&W insurance fit a specific type of deal or a unique or non-typical deal and i'd say that's even more true in the current market environment where deal flow is not as heavy as it was in the past and so R&W insurers are a bit more hungry and looking for ways to make it work.
1: Right. And these brokers and the insurers are just like the transaction lawyers that we get to deal with. They're all adrenaline junkies and they love to to get problems and solve them. Right. What about pricing, Eric? Is there a perception that the premiums are still too high? You know, when these products first came out, I think that was a big barrier. What's the state of play on that?
2: Yeah. Look, we have certainly seen High premiums, like when you said, or or really what comes to mind immediately for me is in Q3 and Q4 of 2021 when the MA market was on fire. Only so many underwriting hours in a day. And you know, pricing really, really shot up at that time. But pricing today has has more than stabilized. It's extremely competitive. And pricing is as low or lower than it's ever been. So, you know, I think the more common myth we see when it comes to pricing is that, you know, the premium should should drive the selection of the R&W insurer.
1: And it definitely shouldn't.
2: I definitely agree. I like the saying, you know, don't be penny wise and, and pound foolish. As we know, whether it's R&W insurance or other lines of insurance, you know, not all insurers are created equal. And so one of the nice things about R&W insurance is you can negotiate that policy form and have that give and take with the carrier, but you can have the strongest policy form, but it's not going to mean a whole lot if you're with a difficult or non-commercial carrier that you're going to have to litigate against to get coverage. So, you know, I think the reality is here on paper, you know, when you see the insurance quotes, they're all going to look similar. And so you have to figure out what the distinguishing factors are. Look, from my perspective, you know, when evaluating quotes, I'm focused on the carrier's commerciality and underwriting, right, and actually placing the policy, keeping up with the pace of the deal. And of course, commerciality on claims. Pricing is going to be important, but it can't be the only factor.
1: Yeah, you know, I still chuckle when we get these proposals from the brokers (laughs) and the quotes are, it almost rises to the level of antitrust because the quotes are so, the pricing is so similar, eerily similar. And so you're right. What really matters is, is the insurer going to be a good partner on the underwriting side and on the claim side, which is a great segue. And for our most loyal listeners of don't take no for an answer, you know that Eric and I have put out a white paper recently on what is the state of play in the claims market. And so Eric, why don't you break down some of the myths that surround claims handling after yeah. a transaction has closed?
2: You know, I don't know if this is a myth or an expectation, but you know, what comes to mind is that our M&A clients if there is a claim, they expect a smooth process a quick process and a commercial claim resolution process. And what our claim report showed is that's not always the case. So we did that claim report. We surveyed market, you know, R&W insurance market participants. And what we saw was a difficult, prolonged claim process. And there's just that disconnect because our clients, they take weeks and months to bet an entire target company and to engage in an acquisition in the tens of millions, hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars. And they do it quickly. And then you have a claim process that can take years.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the key takeaways from our report was that the claims activity is very much on the rise. And so the carriers are starting to treat these claims more like a DNO and o claim or the, the traditional claims that have been handled under other types of policies. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, when you're dealing with transaction lawyers and you're dealing with private equity and M&A guys, they are adrenaline junkies. They need to get that return on investment and move on to the next deal. And so disconnect is exactly the right word. There's a misalignment of expectations on both sides here. And so- Maybe some of the great tips that we provided in that report will be picked up on by the carriers so we can have a smoother ride. So is rep and warranty insurance viewed as more catastrophic loss coverage, do you think?
2: I have heard that. I think some buyers will see it that way. And then other buyers will just view it as responding to major, but not necessarily catastrophic losses. And and that's because of where the retention was. So they really sometimes will question if r insurance can be meaningful. But I think the new reality is that r insurance is more accessible than ever. And by that, I mean, you can have quicker access to the policy limits because retentions are dropping. Ten years ago, retentions were as high as two or two and a half percent of the purchase price. And then, you know, that dropped down to around 1%. And I think that was the standard retention for a long period of time. And actually, that was the case when we did our first survey claim report back in 2020, where we reported that I think it was 71% of claims were within that retention. And so we highlighted that disconnect. And what we saw following that is that retentions are now much lower. Sometimes it's 0.9%. 0.75%, 0.75%, even as low as 0.65 or even 0.5% of the retention. So that's great for our clients. So it means that if there is a claim, you'll be able to access those limits much quicker.
1: So again, our prediction in our 2020 rep and warranty report yes. came true. So now maybe hopefully some of our predictions <laughs> in the 2023 report will also be picked up and acted upon. You know, one of the things in our 2023 report that stood out and I think really is driving some more of this claims activity, is the MA market, and you referenced it a couple of times already, was absolutely on fire. Deals were closing in weeks, not months, right? And there was virtually no diligence being undertaken by the buyer of the company and by the insurers. And, and I think what we're now seeing through the increase in claims activity is Maybe everybody needs to slow down for a minute and take a little bit of a closer look. And the catastrophic losses are coming because what did our report show? Financial statement breach claims are the number one by a very wide margin, the number one claim that's out there. So even if you think about your rep and warranty insurance's catastrophic loss coverage, unfortunately, many buyers of companies in the last couple of years have experienced those types of catastrophic losses.
2: And I was going to say, numerous carriers were reporting that they're getting claims on about 20% of the policies that they issue. So that 20%, I think, is meaningful and it shows that R&W insurance is needed for right. these claims.
1: So another myth. We often yeah. hear that rep and warranty insurers will require the sellers to have skin in the game, that they have to provide some level of indemnification for yeah. rep breaches. So, Eric, is that true or false?
2: That is false. You know, R&W insurance, it's designed to take the place of the seller's indemnification obligation. So in many deals that, you know, reduces significantly the indemnification obligation, but it can also eliminate it. And many years ago, I think when RW w insurance was really just at its genesis in the U.S. at least, you could have a pretty significant difference in pricing where an r policy is placed in a deal where their seller has some skin in the game versus a, a walkaway deal. And the insurer's theory at that time was that, well, they just expected more claims where the seller isn't providing any indemnification whatsoever. And, you know, that history or that claim differential never really panned out. I think our 2020 report confirmed that as well. And so what you're seeing today is that the pricing between policies for those two types of deals really is minimally different. But yes, you can absolutely get a policy where in a walkaway deal.
1: Well, and isn't that also driven by just what the M&A market matured and became, which is sellers demanded walkaway deals, right? And so the rep and warranty insurance market had to adapt to that too, because you and I remember We used to review and negotiate sell-side rep and warranty policies, and those have really gone the way of the dodo bird because the sellers are like, I'm out, right? So go get your rep and warranty policy. I'm not giving an indemnification. I'm out of here. And so I think that also has driven that. But let's talk about that, that idea of a walkaway deal and the seller having no skin in the game. Is there coverage for seller's fraud under these rep and warranty policies?
2: Yeah, so that's another misconception we sometimes see, that R&W insurance won't cover the fraud. And that's the misconception, because, again, that's what this policy is designed for, to cover a breach of a rep. And all the buyer needs to show in order to access the policy is that there's a breach, that the rep is inaccurate, and it's irrelevant. In terms of accessing the policy, whether the rep is inaccurate because the seller made an honest mistake or was blatantly lying. And in fact, you know the policies expressly expect that they're going to cover a fraudulent breach of a rep because that is the one claim where the insurer, after it pays, they're going to potentially have the right to assert a subrogation claim against the seller, you know, only in the instance where the seller acted fraudulent.
1: Right. So in those rare deals where there is some limited indemnification provided by the seller, our listeners need to be very careful not to give a complete and broad release to that seller, right? Because they've got to preserve that subrogation right under the policy. Well, since we're talking about coverage limitations now, too, when it comes to these policies, should M&A buyers expect a laundry list of exclusions on these policies?
2: no they shouldn't and you know what we see on these policies is that there's just a you know there's standard exclusions which are are relatively few and look when it comes to the policy the clients are most focused on the exclusions and so i think they now have the perception that there isn't going to be a laundry list of exclusions and you know i think what actually happens is you know if the buyer does see Five, six, seven deal specific exclusions. That's where the surprise comes because they expect those exclusions to be far fewer. And, you know, that's where, look, if you you get exclusions, you know, five, six, seven, that's where you need to dig in, have a discussion with the insurer, make sure those exclusions are truly based on diligence and, and make sure that they're as narrow as possible because I'd rather have three very targeted specific exclusions than one broad one.
1: Well, and I have to give a shout out to my partner, Eric Jesse, because he has been very successful in the past in getting initially proposed deal-specific exclusions removed, right? Our clients need to understand that just because you get that laundry list, you can start sorting that laundry and taking some of those exclusions out of the policy, right? Absolutely. Something you do very well. All right. Well, so before we wrap up, I have one, one last question for you, Eric. What about deals where the target is a foreign entity? Are US buyers stuck with a European-style policy when they're doing a foreign transaction?
2: Yeah. So I think that there is an expectation or there is the myth that if a US buyer they're acquiring a foreign target, that they're going to have to live on a European-style form. And the reality is you can get a US-style form. And that's important, very important from my perspective, because U.S. policies, they're just much better forms, much more commercial. And U.S. underwriters are much more commercial than compared to their European counterparts. And, you know, the issue with the European style form is you have, number one, you do actually have that laundry list of exclusions, you know, sometimes from A to double Z I've seen. And then the other issue with the European style form is that the entire data room is going to be deemed disclosed, and so what that means is, if you have an unknown claim that comes up and it's tied to a stray one-page document that's buried at the bottom of the data room that no one reviewed, you know, you might be out of luck on on your claim. And so we always try and strive for a U.S. form and try to find the U.S. hook that can get us a U.S. style form when the target is a foreign one. And been successful in doing so.
1: All right. Well, that's great, Eric. And thanks for that. I think our key takeaways on the discussion of myths for reps and warranty policies are one, these policies are a staple now in MA transactions. On the underwriting side, they are negotiable and the pricing is coming down on them. And on the claim side, buckle up because the process of getting the claim actually paid is getting longer and more complicated, but you should hang in there because there is oftentimes recovery at the end of that long process, right? All right. Thank you for joining today and educating us on the myths associated with reps and warranty policies, and we'll catch you next time.
2: All right. Sounds good. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.